Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 19. We continue after a while, I've been away, but back in the evenings to chapter 19 of Second Chronicles, our study tonight will be verses uh, 4 to 11. Second Chronicles 19, verses 4 to 11. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem. And he charged them, thus you shall do, in the fear of the Lord, in faithfulness and with all with your whole heart. Whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live in the, their cities concerning bloodshed, law or commandment, statutes or rules, then you shall warn them that they may not incur guilt before the Lord and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do and, and you will not incur guilt." And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, in all the king's matters, and the Levites will serve you as officers. Deal courageously, and may the Lord be with the upright. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this interesting material, which we know directs itself to our lives, particularly our life in the church but also in society. Make us wise in the way of justice. And then, Lord, save us by the way of grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the steps of the United States Supreme Court, there rest two rather large statues. On the left is the authority of law. That's the name of the statue, which has a vigilant male figure who holds in his left hand a tablet representing the law, and behind the tablet is a sheathed sword, symbolizing the power of enforcement. Now on the right side of the steps is a statue called the Contemplation of Justice, and this depicts the Greek goddess of justice, Themis, who is known for her far-sightedness. And interestingly, in her right hand, she holds and considers a smaller statue of justice. And that smaller statue is a blindfolded woman who is holding scales close to her breast. Now that blindfolded woman shows the impartiality of the law, which is to be measured on a fair and honest balance. Now these four features that these statues illustrate uh, show the demands of true justice in society. There must be laws. There must be the ability to enforce them. But there must be impartial fairness in doing so and sound judgment to weigh the scales. Now, the success of the American justice system in achieving these goals is often questioned. But at least the convictions, such as they are, accord with the biblical idea of justice. Psalm 99.4 says of God, the king in his might loves justice. 
You have established equity. You have executed judgment, justice, and righteousness in Jacob. In fact, so seriously does God take the matter of justice that Isaiah warned, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross. Isaiah 125, that was a judgment fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians because of a lack of justice. But then Isaiah says that in the day of God's salvation, it is justice that will be restored. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now these and so many other biblical references show that God expects his people to live under a justice that reflects the character of their Lord. And accordingly, in church history, after the Jews were restored to Jerusalem, after the Babylonian exile, they had two leaders who sought justice. One was Nehemiah, the other was Ezra, the priest. And Ezra represented the religious establishment. Nehemiah, a very godly Jewish man, but he was actually the Persian governor on behalf of the emperor far away in Susa. And we read in Ezra 7, 25-26, that they appointed magistrates and judges who knew God's law and were able to enforce it. So they established justice in the holy city. Now what's interesting is it's right around that time that the chronicler is giving his record of prior history in the kingdom of Judah. And he recalls here, no doubt, in support of the justice program Ezra and Nehemiah had put into place in Jerusalem, he tells of a similar reformation of justice under the the rule of the Jewish king Jehoshaphat. Now, without justice, God's rule is distorted and unrest will trouble the people. Gordon McConville writes that Jehoshaphat took the measures we read in this chapter to carry on the business of applying the law to the creation of an equitable society. Now, Jehoshaphat's reforms anticipate the instructions that Jesus gave for justice within the church. You'll find them in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. We'll be looking at them tonight. And Martin Selman writes, a concern for social and corporate justice, as well as personal justice, has been a feature of both Judaism and Christianity, though interest in these matters has not always been consistent, dare we say. And so it's with reference, interestingly, it was with reference to church leaders performing the justice of church discipline that Jesus spoke his famous promise, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's not just about Christian gatherings in particular, it's about the elders of the church undertaking the holy task of justice. Now, before the chronicler tells of the reforms that Jehoshaphat instituted, he very significantly provides a brief note that shows that true justice can occur only when there has been a return to God in repentance and faith. There has, the chapter began when Jehoshaphat returned from, to Judah from that foolish dalliance with King Ahab, wicked Ahab, that alliance, going to war with Ahab. And when he got back to Jerusalem, the prophet Jehu uh, rebuked him very severely in verse 2. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of God has gone out against you from the Lord. Now, we're never told explicitly what form that wrath took place, although the invasion in the next chapter might very well be it. But what we are told is that Jehoshaphat received that prophetic rebuke with great humility. And that's very notable. 
Because years earlier, Jehu's father, Jehu is the son of Hanani, and years earlier, Hanani the seer went to Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, to rebuke him for infidelity. It didn't go so well in that case. Asa had grown proud. He threw the prophet into chains, Second Chronicles 16, 7 to 10. Well, and this contrasts when it comes to Jehoshaphat. It shows his godly heart. He not only repented of his own sin, but he pursued a revival in Judah that resulted in the people returning in faith to the Lord. Now, we see this in verse 4, which begins that during this time, Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem. Now, that home, of course, was that city was home to the temple of the Lord with the ministry of his priest, with the sacrifices offered for sin and the teaching of God's word. And, and, and what God intended the temple to do seems to have had its effect in the life of Jehoshaphat. For, for soon he was moved inwardly to address the growing unbelief among the people. And he went out among, again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, And he brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Verse 4. Now, why spiritual leadership understands that the great priority for any body of God's people, the priority rests not merely on the outward religion, not merely on the proper rituals of worship, for instance, but always the aim is the spiritual vitality of a people who have turned to the Lord in true faith. I, I often will say, I'm not really in the church growth business, I'm in the church vitality business. It's true faith. Hearts turn to the Lord. The growth will take care of itself. It's real spiritual life that we're to be aiming for. And that's what Jehoshaphat's example instructs pastors, that that's what we are to be aiming for in our ministry among God's people. It sets a template for fathers and mothers. Our aim is not merely to regulate the behavior of our children and our Christian households, but that we're to seek their hearts for the Lord. Just like Jehoshaphat wanted the people of God to turn their hearts to the Lord, that's what we do in our homes as well, to come to Christ in personal faith. Now we're told that Jehoshaphat went personally throughout the nation, from south to north, Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, seeking the hearts of his people for the Lord. Now if we wonder how Jehoshaphat went about doing this, the answer is found in verse 4 in the word again. It says he went out again among the people. Now that means that he's done it before. And what he did before, he did a second time. We find that in Second Chronicles chapter 17, verse 9. Because when he was a newly crowned king, we learned that he sent the Levites throughout the land. They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Second Chronicles 17, 9. You see, Jehoshaphat knew that it is the word of God that turns the hearts of the people back to God. And now that he was renewing his attention on the spiritual fidelity of his realm, no longer foolishly involving himself with Ahab and the wickedness around him, no, it was the the godliness of of his people. He not only sent out Bible teachers, but he went himself. What a sight it would have been. To be in one of the towns of Judah, there's the Levites from the temple, and there in the regalia of the king of the house of David is Jehoshaphat, either teaching the Bible himself, more likely standing prayerfully by, giving authority to the proclamation of the word of the Lord. What a beautiful sight that is. 
And through that ministry, he succeeded in bringing them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. I think the use of the covenant name Lord suggests an emphasis on the covenant promises of God to atone for the sins of those who believe. And the God of their fathers suggests an emphasis on the teaching of God's former gracious dealings with his people as recorded in Scripture. Now, I think what's significant here is that this account of the revival, just one verse given to it, it's a pretty big deal, one verse is given to it under Jehoshaphat's ministry, it is given as a preamble to the justice reforms that the chapter is really about. And seeing that, I think we are justified in making a conclusion, namely, that true justice can occur only where God's word is taught and believed, where the hearts of people have been drawn to the Lord in true faith. Well, surely we're living in a, in a time and a place where that principle is laid out before us. There's so much talk of, of justice, and yet hatred reigns on all sides. Why? Because it is not centered on hearts that receive the word of God, not only in its truth and justice, but also in its mercy and grace and her giving their lives back to the Lord. I think it might have been better if the Supreme Court had had a statue not of some Greek mythological figure contemplating some ideal of justice, but rather if they opened their Bibles. Now, there are some cases in which they do. There are godly justices. We're grateful for them. There are places where the plaques of the Ten Commandments, I think, still may have managed to escape removal. And yet what is necessary is hearts that have been returned to the Lord. God's new covenant promise that was given to Jeremiah after Jerusalem fell to judgment and then it's recorded again in Hebrews 8 tells us that it is only the renewed heart that is ever able to do God's will. Before we even talk about justice, we have to have that straight. There has to be revival. Here's what God said he would do. He said, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. That's a foretelling of the regeneration that came through the grace of Jesus Christ so that our hearts are changed to know him. This is the necessary precondition of any justice. The chronicler's brief mention then of the revival fostered by Jehoshaphat. It is this that sets the stage for the true establishment of justice. Now, what follows, starting in verse 5, is the record of the system of justice that Jehoshaphat then implemented for his kingdom. We're not given details and specifics, but we have here is the outline and the general intention. And there's little doubt. You say, now, where did he get his system of justice? Well, the answer is going to be from the Bible. He got it from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 16 and 17, which speak of these things. Martin Selman says the reform attempts to restore the principles of the Mosaic Covenant in people's hearts as well as in their actions. Moreover, the basic features of what he's going to do had been in place in previous years during the realm of David and of Solomon, and he's making modifications to administer God's justice more thoroughly in his own time. Well, let's look at what he does. In verse 5, he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. Now, Deuteronomy had directed that every town should have its justices. Deuteronomy 16, 18. But apparently Jehoshaphat doesn't think he can pull that off. 
And so he's going to center it in the fortified cities, the military garrisons in the major cities that ring the country around Jerusalem. Now, these were places that were under royal control and command. And they also then would make the magistrates accessible. You see the logic. You put them in the cities and that whole county, as it were, it's the county courthouse, as it were. And that's where the justice will be done. Now, cases requiring justice or disputes that needed adjudication could be brought to these courts. Raymond Dillard notes also that the troops, the soldiers in the fortified cities, could repress any opposition to the law, particularly as it might come from powerful local families. There was the sword backing up the law. Well, in addition to these courts dispersed in the fortified cities, Jehoshaphat erected in Jerusalem what seems to have been a high court. Verse 8 says, Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem. Now, this reference to disputed cases indicates this was a court of appeals from the lower courts. And this right of appeals is rooted in the practice that Moses established back in the Sinai Desert when his father-in-law Jethro reminded him that he couldn't possibly solve all the cases in Jerusalem. And so then he appointed elders, and it was the hard cases and those that were disputed that were to come to Moses, Exodus 18, 22. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 1, verse 17, the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. So it's a court of appeal, but also of the more serious matters. Probably the capital cases were all brought to the high court in Jerusalem. Now, the fact that this high court consisted of Levites, priests, and heads of families suggests that there's different types of officials for dealing with different types of cases. In addition to other duties they might have, these high justices, they practice the legal profession. These were legal professionals in their respective disciplines. Now, matters that dealt with religious ceremonies, they'd be handled by the priests. And then the senior elders, Matthew Henry calls them, persons of age and experience who had been men of business, well, they would consider matters of property and the like. John Thompson suggests that the Levites served as the court bailiffs. So we had the priests to deal with the religious issues. You had the, the elders to deal with the secular matters and then the 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 Levites were the court functionaries who carried out the decisions of the court. Now, you can't help but notice that Jehoshaphat's justice system, therefore, contained a separation between church and state. Now, you have to be careful using that language with Old Testament Israel because, strictly speaking, there was no separation between church and state. The state and the church were one. It was the the holy nation. Both the king and the high priest were directly ruled by God. And yet, there is clearly a separation instituted here, legally, between the sacred and the secular. Go down to verse 19. You'll see it more clearly. And verse 11, I mean. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord. That's going to be the religious cult, the worship, the temple. And in all the king's matters, the Levites will serve you as officers. And so the matters of the Lord would be temple payments, temple duties, religious observance. The king's representative would deal with taxes, military service, civil claims. 
Now that may, I suppose, represent some latent strife between the royal household and the temple household. That sort of thing certainly happened. But in any case, it does involve the kind of separation of powers that is seen very blessedly in the United States Constitution. What's interesting in the First Amendment, the purpose is not to protect the the state from the incursions of the church, as is so often said today. The actual purpose was to protect the church from the incursions of the state, so easily forgotten. Now, this would be a very valuable practice when you came to the post-exilic period, because there was no Jewish king then. There was the, the line of David, often lost, but still there. But the royal office was actually held by foreign kings, the the satraps of the Babylonians and then the Persians. And so it was awfully helpful that there was an institution of justice under the religious authorities. The priests, really, after the exile, it's the priests who play the leading role. They're the ones with authority against incursions uh, in matters of God's law from the civil authority. Very interesting to see this playing out in the Old Testament, a separation of church and state. Well, just as Jehoshaphat instituted legal procedures for the kingdom of Judah, likewise, are you aware that the Lord Jesus has established procedures for adjudicating discipline in the church? And his process of church discipline is as simple as it is unused. He says in Matthew 18, 15, that when a Christian has a dispute with another believer, the first step they are to take is to approach that fellow believer personally seeking to resolve it. Oh, how much trouble in the church would be avoided by the observance of the first step of Jesus' system of discipline and dealing with sin in the church. If your brother sins against you, Jesus said, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Matthew eighteen fifteen. Now, if that personal attempt at restoration fails, Jesus then says, take along one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Matthew 18, 16. So Jesus has procedural interest in mind. Well, then then take another person with you, one or two people. There's someone to observe it. There's witnesses to what happened. Now, if that second attempt fails, the matter is to be brought before the church elders. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I think the context there makes clear that the church is primarily the court of the elders. And then when that is rejected, when biblical church discipline is rejected, the offender, Jesus says, is to be removed from the church membership. Jesus uses striking language. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew eighteen seventeen. there is the biblical duty of excommunication. Now, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, that Christians should avoid taking cases of justice against fellow Christians before the civil authorities. And his context, of course, was one in which the civil rulers were very largely ungodly pagans, which may or may not be the case today. But here's what Paul wrote. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he not dare, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? His reasoning is, how do you expect an unregenerate person to give you a better judgment than a fellow believer? Now, surely he would argue, he does argue, there, are, must, be, there must be Christians in the church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, with enough wisdom to give you a judgment that you could accept. Verse 5, 
Paul further argues that Christians should rather suffer wrong, would rather to be defrauded, than to allow the gospel to be disgraced by differences between Christians being brought before the civil court. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Now, that is something that we should always take in mind, particularly when it's grievances. Uh, we should, uh, there, there are times I have seldom seen it done, although I have seen it done a couple of times in 25 years, maybe two times. Uh, the matter is brought before the church leaders. That is wise. Now, let me say this. It's important that we not take those words of Paul as an absolute because we must balance them against what he said in Romans 13, verse 4, where he described the civil magistrate as God's servant for your good. God has given the civil authorities a charge to do. They are required by God to maintain peace and order in society. And that means that when it comes to serious crimes, we think of a violent assault, we think of things like sexual abuse, it is necessary, it is the duty of Christians to report these things to the civil authorities. What a mistake it has been with many Christians, very motivated by Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6. They, 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 well, they won't say they're hiding it in the church. They're trying to deal with very serious crimes in the church. No, we're to respect the role God has given to the civil authority in those kinds of matters. They are right to expect us to do so. There are special cases uh, uh, the counselor in a, in, a, in a privileged setting, that kind of thing, where there might be an exception, but we should respect the authority and support secular justice. Well, along with his system of justice, Jehoshaphat exhorted the officials in which we find principles of biblical justice that, we must, that they must uphold and we should as well. Now, these are not exhaustive. This is not the only passage in the Bible where you'll find principles of jurisprudence. And yet they're important for all who administer justice in the church or in society. Now, first, in verse 6, he preached to the officers of the lower courts, those out in the fortified cities, the, the lower courts, and he urged them that they were to exercise justice by recognizing that it is God they served. Verse 6, consider, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. Now, we can see the godliness of Jehoshaphat because he's, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you the authority to just do justice, and you don't work for me. You don't answer to me directly. It's not my will. You're not, don't be looking over your shoulder. What does the king want us to do? You're to be looking upward. What does God want us to do? You're to do justice on behalf of the God. You work for him. You're an agent of God's higher rule. Now, passages like this would play an important role in church history. You think of the, the centuries after the Protestant Reformation in places like Scotland and England where the, the kings sought to usurp the rule over the church and Christians like Samuel Rutherford who wrote that great and influential treatise called Lex Rex. It was passages like this that and very influentially, there's a, there's, a, a, there's a line from Lex Rex to our constitution that says the king is not above the law. It's not the king over the law. It's the law over the king, particularly when it comes to the law of God. This is a passage like that. Jehoshaphat says, you're not working for me. It's not my will you're to do. What a godly thing for him to say. It is the will of the Lord. Now, of course, the law that he was enforcing was God's law as given in the books of Moses. And since the law was his, God's authority in the law was higher than any will of the king. 
John Thompson comments, judicial authority depended on the rule of the Lord and was to reflect his attributes of righteousness, justice, and fairness. So one principle of justice is it must serve God and not the desires of men. Now, not only were Jehoshaphat's justices to rule on the Lord's behalf and in accordance with his word, but here's a second principle. They were to do so impartially and without the influence of bribes. Verse 7, be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Now, dare I say, the need to emphasize that is suggested that this might be a problem. And you know what? It is a problem in, in direct and in more subtle ways. In fact, the prophets would lambast the, the people, the rulers of Judah, on this very basis, particularly the injustice suffered by the poor because of manipulations of the justice system by the rich. Listen to Isaiah 123. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause cannot come to him. Why don't the fatherless and the widow not get justice? They can't afford it. They don't have the money to make bribes, and they're at the mercy of those who do. There's no justice. It's just the power of money and power. Micah railed against corruption, exposing the poor and widows to exploitation by those who could purchase unfair balances. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Micah 3, 9 to 10. Now, Micah's particular issue there had to do with real estate. It was the manipulation of tax codes and zoning codes so that the rich just got richer and they didn't, who cares what happened to them as we, we foreclose their home unjustly. These things happen in our society quite frequently. Now Micah pointed out what would happen, what would happen is that God would judge them. Micah 3.12, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. How's that for your real estate development? Nothing wrong with real estate development, but not when it's unjust and manipulative and exploitative of the poor. Clearly, God was deeply offended by corrupt justice in the hands of the rich and powerful. Now, of course, this happens today. It can happen in the church when certain influential families get one set of church discipline and other families get another. That's wrong. It undermines trust and leadership. It dishonors the Lord. It certainly happens in society when the rich can, can employ massive legal resources to paralyze the courts. But the poor have virtually no one to represent them, no resources, and they're at mercy. It's widely known that this is the case so often in our judicial system. It's to be impartial. It's to be fair. It's not to be contorted by bribes. Now, thirdly, Jehoshaphat shows that the best and true standards of justice come from God's word. Want to know how to enact a just society, a just family? Then read the Bible. And this principle rests upon, it extends the first principle that it's God's justice at work. But notice in verse 10 how he directs his justices to adjudicate matters concerning bloodshed, law or commandment, statutes or rules. Now what he's doing, what's he doing? He's cataloging the various types of biblical materials as it pertains to judicial matters. That's what he's doing. And, it, and, and he's referring them to derive their legal practices from the law of Moses. Now, 
It needs to be said that many of the applications of law found in Numbers or Deuteronomy reflect a historical, cultural, and even covenantal setting that is different from ours. And so you'll find things that probably are a little out of, out of, out of date. For instance, a lot of detail is given in Deuteronomy 19 about what to do if you're swinging an axe and the axe head flies off and it hits somebody. That reflects a setting that we're no longer in, and we need to understand that. But the principles underlying those examples are valid. They will not be improved upon by merely human ideas. And so the best and most just society will be one that reflects seriously and reverently on biblical law and justice. Now, among the principles you'll see in the Bible are, capital, are, are the death penalty, capital just punishment. Clearly taught, Leviticus 24, 17 states it directly. Paul in Romans 13 says the, the, the king exercises the sword. My friends, the sword only has one purpose. And so, for instance, a principle of biblical justice would be capital punishment, particularly in cases of premeditated murder. There's a lot of ink in the Old Testament law about how to make restitution. So if you've stolen from someone, if you've even borrowed something and you, and you misuse it, never gave it back, there's procedures, there's to be restitution. These are the kinds of principles that if we were wise, we would let them guide our jurisprudence. Well, Jehoshaphat's orders urge church leaders today then to reflect and adhere, particularly when it's the church. It ought to be that way in society, although we may, we really often don't have a ground to expect it. But when it comes to the church, the elders of the church must reflect and adhere to the clear teachings of Scripture, particularly when conducting church discipline. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't need wisdom. Trust me, you will need prayer and wisdom. We've had cases where we've, the elders, you don't know, but we've had days of fasting and prayer, asking for wisdom, asking for God to turn hearts. It's never easy. It's never just a cookie-cutter exercise. You have, to, you have to really deal with the situation and understand it. And yet, when it comes to matters like who is eligible for marriage, how do we understand a divorce? Who's eligible for church office? How do we deal with interpersonal conflicts in the church? These things must be decided directly from the teaching of Holy Scripture. It should not be some wisdom of our own. It should be careful reflection upon. Usually, always in our, when we're dealing with these things, first thing we will do is we will read the relevant biblical passages. That sets the rules. We don't make the rules. God makes the rules. That's what we're to do. Jehoshaphat insisted in verse 7 that God is with you in giving judgment. You see, when you're doing that, when, when we take such solace in the uncomfortable business of church discipline, that when we're doing it according to God's word, the Lord is with you in giving judgment. Verse 7. When we're practicing according to God's word, Jehoshaphat adds, now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Now we might think that the, when it comes to civil government, surely in the church we're to obey the Bible, but you know the civil government's different. It doesn't matter whether they're biblical or not. Well, let me remind you that both believers and unbelievers are under the sovereign authority of the Creator and the Lord of all. When governments erect laws that conflict with God's word, they sin. And they may expect, one thing they may expect is unrest because in many cases Christians have no choice but to render civil disobedience. That's not helpful to us. It's not helpful to anyone. But it also brings divine displeasure. When nations erect unjust laws, they can expect punishment from a God who is there, just as when good laws are administered corruptly. 
Now, in principle, Christians will make every effort to obey the laws given to us. We remember what Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. So we pay our taxes. That was the issue there. And we, we obey the laws so far as we are able. But, but, but to render to God the things that belong to God. And we remember who is the superior in that arrangement. The higher authority always belongs to God. Well, let me give you a final principle of biblical justice. It, it, it is that we have the aim not only of serving the Lord by reflecting his own character, his holiness, his righteousness, but an aim of biblical justice is to deter God's wrath through punishment and then instruction. That's what he says. Look at verse 11. Jehoshaphat urged them, you shall warn them that they may not incur guilt before the Lord and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do and you will not incur guilt. And so there's a duty for the law to instruct morally on the basis of the word of God, in which case the guilt is not on the justices. They've done their duty. It's on those who violate the law. And God exercises a moral rule as sovereign over the whole world. Again, nations that indulge in iniquity, nations that spread violence can expect retribution from heaven's throne. People say to me, do you think God will ever judge America? My first response is, what do you think accounts for the last 20 years or so? Read Isaiah 3. Uh, uh, there's no other explanation to judgment. And it would be a disgrace to God if he did not judge us. Just the, the deplorable sin of abortion alone, not to mention widespread corruption and injustice elsewhere. But we, so far as we are able, we are to employ the word of God to reprove sinners and to promote that obedience to God that alone brings blessing. Of course, you know the best way to promote justice in society, it's by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Andrew Stewart writes that God uses external restraints, like the police and the courts, to subdue sinful behavior, but it is only the saving grace of the Lord Jesus that will ever be able to overcome the power of sin in human nature. We are, the, 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 those involved in justice, are to punish and instruct. Well, we are also to instruct and we're to preach that grace which alone gives righteousness. Well, look at verse 11. Jehoshaphat concludes by noting that it's not easy. Justice is hard. It takes courage. Deal courageously. You know, justice requires taking sides. It, it requires meeting out sentences. It's, few things can be more thankless. Likewise, pastors and elders know very well that while they have a duty to perform church discipline, they are almost always going to pay for doing it. That's why very few churches actually practice church discipline. Because the elders know very well they're going to be exhausted by a difficult matter that's going to take forever. It's going to stress them out. And then they're going to be criticized no matter what they do. That doesn't change our duty to do it. We trust the Lord. Be courageous, he said. Teach the word of the Lord. Pray for the people to think in a biblical and wise way. We are to show courage. And look at how he concludes. Here's a prayer for your leaders. And may the Lord be with the upright. Verse 11. John Olley notes the sober but encouraging realities of those who were charged with serving justice. He says they were given a task to do from which they could easily be diverted due to fears and, and to temptations to look to man rather than the Lord. Thus the exhortation of courage, strength, 
but they were not alone. The final words were a reminder of the presence and strength of the Lord. Well, Jehoshaphat's teaching about justice reflects how important it is to God. And Paul writes that God enacts justice as a terror to bad conduct, Romans 13.3. He says the carrying out of justice is God's wrath on the wrongdoer, Romans 13.4. Now, there's a problem for us when we hear that language. And that's because he is invariably talking about us. The wrongdoer that has God's wrath, bad conduct for which there is to be terror. We all deserve, it turns out, to fall beneath the sword of God's justice. Paul says it in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to make things more alarming, the Bible teaches that at the end of history, there's going to be a day of final judgment. We've been studying that in Second Peter, where he teaches that so clearly. There's a final judgment, and the books are going to be opened. This is bad. And we're going to stand, and on the throne is going to be the Son of God. There's actually going to be a perfectly sinless man representing the justice of God who cannot be corrupted, who cannot be bribed. He's going to sit upon that throne of justice. This is quite alarming. On that dread day, the books of God's accounting will be opened and all people, living and dead, Revelation 20, 12, will be judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. How dreadful will that day of judgment be when a stricter and more exacting justice than anything Jehoshaphat designed will determine the eternal destiny of every soul. My friends, there is the truth of the bad news of the justice of God that is answered by the good news of mercy that God provides through Jesus Christ. For here's the good news. God is not only a God of justice. That's actually good news too. We praise him for that. The problem is that we're, we're in trouble because of it. But the, the good news that answers our case is that God is a God of mercy and of grace. And so when Paul had pointed out that all have sinned, he went on to say this, that we may be justified by his grace as a gift. How will that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. Now that redemption to which he refers is the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. He who had no sin of his own paid the just penalty of sin for all who believed in his name. He grants them forgiveness and justification through faith. Paul said that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. What he meant was that he alone, who had no sin of his own, was able to bear the punishment our sins deserve. He satisfied the demands of God's justice. He pacified God's just and holy wrath. And he grants us justification through faith in him. Psalm 85.10 foretold what happened at the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Do you realize that we are delivered from the guilt of our sins, not by the suspension of divine justice. Divine justice can never be suspended. No, but by its merciful fulfillment on our behalf through the death of Christ. And if you will believe in Jesus, James 2.13 says, mercy will triumph over judgment. He will fulfill all justice on your behalf through his shed blood 
and he will deliver you from condemnation by the sacrifice he offered on the cross. Now it's with this mercy in mind that the Christian commitment to justice will never include some proud claim that we may fulfill it apart from trusting reliance in Jesus Christ. No, we instead stand humbly before God, pleading the grace of his Son. We think of the words very fittingly of Horatius Bonar. Here's our claim. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. And then, when we have been delivered from our guilt by atoning mercy, then we must pursue justice and equity among men. Remembering those words of Psalm 11, verse 7, For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Amen. Father, we thank you for this interesting chapter. But Father, make it more than a matter of interest. Make it a matter of contemplation. Cause us to realize that wholesomeness only comes from your rule, from your word. But Father, there must be grace. There must be the new birth. There must be the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, would you do that in our time? Cause us to seek your justice by preaching Christ. Now while there is time before the final judgment comes. And then, Lord, let we who have found that mercy in Christ, we for whom justice has been satisfied in his blood, will let us seek what is right. Let us seek what is fair. Let us seek what is equitable, knowing that you love justice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.